The next several weeks we'll be in Exodus, we'll chapters 1 through 14, and we, we just got started last week. So uh, for most of you, if you're at all familiar with the story, uh, we're starting where you would think the beginning is. In fact, if you're probably familiar with the story, it's, it's not, I wouldn't be surprised if it's by two main ways. One is the cartoon called Prince of Egypt, which was a pretty good cartoon. And the other is uh, by the more notable epic film called The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston from 1956. Now that is <clears throat> considered by most Americans actually to be the authoritative telling of Exodus, not the scriptures. Uh, <laughs> I wish I was joking. I think most people actually think that is, that is and it's a good movie. I, I will say, the farther you get away from 1956... Uh, the costumes and makeup begin to become a little bit more humorous. Um, so that gets in the way. It used to be this big film for our family, and now, I, like Ben-Hur, I kind of chuckle at uh, the get-up. Uh, but nonetheless, that is, uh, for so many Americans, uh, the Exodus, which is really interesting, and it actually has a lot to do with this morning, because I think in that movie... A third of the movie's passed, and it's a long movie, three hours and 39 minutes. So there has an intermission back in that day. But in that film, I mean, I think maybe a third of the film has progressed. When, and if you opened up the Bible and said, no, where are we? You would be in chapter two. A third of the movie is chapter two. Uh, which is really quite surprising, since to get to the Ten Commandments, that's chapter 20. So there's this, this uh, th- an entire hour, we might say, of a three-and-a-half-hour film is dedicated to one chapter in this book. And we're going to do one Sunday on it. But this is the reason it happens. Um, it, Moses lives to be 120 years old, so if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 34, so that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books. At the end of the fifth book, he can see the promised land, and he passes away. The Lord brought him up to the promised land, but didn't permit him to go into the promised land because he had sinned publicly in a way that had kind of disqualified him from enjoying the land. Um, Nonetheless, he was with the Lord, and that's better than the promised land. So uh, at 120, he he passes. Well, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. For those of you who know the story, they, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, which means they did the exodus, he exodused, from Egypt at 80. And in the book of Exodus, Moses is born in chapter 2, verse 2. And by the end of the second chapter, he's 80. So the first 80 years of his life is essentially being brushed through in the second chapter. You can imagine how Hollywood would say, that's just unacceptable. We need an entire hour of the first 80 years of his life. But really, and this is important to embrace, because in some sense, Exodus is a little bit autobiographical. I can't stand using that word. But Moses is almost certainly the chief editor or author of this book. And he's such a major character in the book. In fact, he's a type of Christ. And so it's, it's difficult to simply say it's not about Moses. Moses is a central character because he, Jesus is a better Moses. So in a sense, Moses in telling the story with himself being at the forefront of so much of that's happening, brushes through 80 years of his life 
in 25 verses. And that's what we have in front of us today. And that's going to cause a few things in our heart. One is we're going to want to fill in the blanks like Hollywood does. We have this desperate desire to know. It's, we're not going to be told enough. It's just, he's just not going to tell you enough to quench your appetite because he's moving through 80 years of his life. So you're going to want to fill in the blanks. And what I want to caution you about is, is I, I, while I admire that desire, and by the way, I encourage it if, if someone who studies the word, find the blanks and live in them. And a lot of times uh, that helps you understand what's actually being said. But while, while that temptation is, is here, what I think is more important is to notice what is he actually saying? If 80 years has been condensed into 20, really 23 verses, what, what is actually being said? So with that, let's go ahead and read what has been said and, uh, <clears throat> and get to know Moses or the Lord or the Lord and Moses. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. I'm going to break it up into about four readings. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. I'll stop there real quick, just very quickly. This is Moses establishing he's a purebred Levite. That becomes more important later. But just to show you, Everything is with a purpose. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, that's a really interesting start of a story, and it, it, it holds hands with the last verse of the first chapter. This, in case you're coming brand new into the story of Moses, you'd be like, what kind of mom would put her kid in a basket on the Nile? Um, but it's because you missed last week. Look at verse 22 of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So there is this pogrom occurring in and among the Hebrew people where as a way of population control and uh, uh, keep tamping down you know, any, any kind of unrest, Pharaoh made an edict to destroy all the young 
Hebrew children that were going to, Hebrew boys that were going to be born. And so what the mother does here is in light of that. And there's a few details you see. In the first, in the second verse, you see that she saw that he was, what the Bible says, is a fine child. Some people want to say that, you know, he was a handsome child, but the critique of that is what mother doesn't think her son is handsome? That's saying nothing. Because every mom, a face, you know, a face only a mother could love. You ever hear that? Of course she thinks he's a handsome child. Of course he, she thinks he's a talented child and he's going to go places in the world. Of course she thinks all that. She's a mom. So the, 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 many scholars think there must be something else being said here. I think one thought is that he's a healthy child. And I think what, what we're trying to reach to here is this is not a case of child abandonment. I think the author wants you to know that. This is not a child where a mother's trying to get rid of it. The Bible wants you to know that the mother, the child was worthy of a mother's love and that the mother loved the child. So when she puts him in a basket and pushes it off in the water, she's not getting rid of a problem. I, and I got to tell you, this is one of those places I can't help but, and I'm not, I'm not a mom, and I'm not a woman, but just to imagine that mother is, there's faith there. There has got to be tremendous faith at work in that moment. There are, by the way, this is total sidebar, but, you know, the Old Testament gets such a rap for chauvinism. There is a consistent admiration of women in this first and second chapter. The midwives last week, the mother, the daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter are all admirable. They're all life givers in the story of death. And I just want you to see it. God is not chauvinist. So I, she's not abandoning her child. She puts him in this basket. And the Hebrew word for basket, by the way, it, we shouldn't miss it, is ark. She puts him in an ark. It is exactly the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 to talk about Noah building an ark. In fact, she builds the ark the same way with pitch and asphalt, this bitumen. She's using the same... The, the, Moses has got to be grinning as he's writing this down to say, I want you to think of what happened in Genesis chapter 6 because the same sort of thing is happening now. In fact, if you think about it, in Genesis chapter 6, the waters were God's source of judgment for the world while they were the, it was the source of salvation for Noah. As the Nile is doing the same thing right now. The Nile is a source of judgment over all these young boys being born except for Moses who's being saved by the very same river. Isn't that what Pharaoh said? Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall do what? Cast into the Nile. There is, um, there's a, a phrase in theology, it's called Deus Absconditus, the invisible God. Esther is a great example of that, of the invisible God. Of a story being told where God is obviously at work like in our lives. But we don't have a prophet to come write it down and say, and God said, but God's hand is obviously there. I would say, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this is a place of the invisible God because 
He's so obviously at work in this story that it's sublime. I wouldn't say it's invisible, it's sublime. I mean, who can't see God in this story? Take the child and put him into an ark and cast the ark off and there's new life at the other end. So the Pharaoh's daughter sees the child and then you have this sublime, divine twist of events where the mother actually gets paid to nurse her son. I mean, only God does this. This whole book, by the way, God's showing off. This is his show-off book in the Bible. But the mother gets to nurse the child and she gets to raise the child. It's not sure how long she has the child, whether it's just through the nursing years or whether it's a little bit longer. What we do know is a little bit later in the chapter, Moses knows he's a Hebrew. He knows. Which means, it suggests to me, somewhere he learned it. And I, So I wouldn't be surprised if he's with his mother and his sister and his older brother Aaron, Aaron's three years older than him, if he's with his family for some time, maybe six, seven, seven, eight years. But eventually, Pharaoh's daughter takes her takes him and adopts him as her son. And she names him Moses. Now, here, the writer likens Moses to the Hebrew word for drawn out, which it is a, it's very familiar to. But it, Moses is almost certainly an Egyptian word. If you think of uh, the Pharaoh at the time, his name is Tutmos. You hear that? That Mos in the back, it means born of. So Tutmos, he's born of the god of Toth. Ramses, the last letters, M-S-E-S. You see Moses in that? Right? He's, that is born of Ra, the god Ra. So Moses' name has this irony of it sounding like drawn out, like being drawn out of the Nile, and it sounding like being born of in the same name. And, and that's what's in front of us here. Now, I just wanted to kind of breeze, breeze over some of those details, um, partly because they, they just give some color to it. But if we're sitting here thinking autobiographically, why would Moses, what is Moses trying to do with this moment? If he's going to tell us his origin in this way, I think we could say this, that at the very least, this is true, that but not for the Lord, there would be no Moses. Right? If, if we're going to come into a story where, where we may be tempted to worship the man over the God of the man, he reminds us from the very beginning, I was in a basket floating away when I was rescued by what is obviously the Lord. Okay, let's keep going. Let's read the next section. So about 40 years later, one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? <clears throat> he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? 
Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. I think we're given three, three really important data points in, in about the person of Moses in these, in these brief scriptures. The first one happens right in the beginning. And it says, one day when Moses had grown up, don't lose the significance of it. He went out to his people and looked at their burdens. Now, that is a simple sentence, but I think it says a lot. He went out to his people. He's a prince of Egypt. That's what it says. That's what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is retelling the story. He's a prince of Egypt. And in fact, in Hebrews 11, he's attributed to faith at this moment for choosing his people over the life of Egypt. So there's this moment in his life where where Moses is choosing who his people are. His name could go either way. And he says... I'm a Hebrew. And, and even the, the scripture here, he goes out to, to look on his people, and what does he notice? He notices their burdens. I mean, I think that simple sentence is a flashlight into who Moses is. That's the first data point. The second one is he sees this Egyptian beating the Hebrew, comma, one of his people, the writer says. And he strikes down the Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian. Now, this is not a crime of passion. For one, let's just declare what it isn't. He's not intervening to stop the beating. That's not what he's doing. Beating's done and no one's around. And the Bible says he looks this way and that way. Make sure nobody's looking. And then does it mention a struggle? No. It has, all, it has the look of walk up from behind and cut his throat or something like that, right? I mean, you fill in the blank. But he's not rescuing the Israelite. He's not intervening into the problem. He sees an injustice happening and he makes his own determination, right? This is vigilante justice, I think is what you would call it. This is vigilante justice at work. He sees something that ought not to have been, and he decides in his own mind that the taskmaster has forfeited his life because of his mistreatment of one of my people. I think that's what Moses does. He kills the guy and buries him in the sand. Now, I'm not defending him, though you could come to a lecture series in a few weeks, and we could talk about that, but I'm not defending him. I'm just saying, hey, it happened, and this is what, it, what I think it was. Okay? It would be inconsistent here to think that it was a crime of passion. It's just inconsistent with what's being written or that he was just trying to help the Israelite. Nobody was there. But I think it is a data point into his character. It, it, to the degree that a lot of us see injustice in the world. A lot of us see it. Very, very few people do this. And maybe this isn't appropriate. Maybe the Lord would say one day, let's visit about that day, okay? But still, very few of us even do something appropriate. Something's in Moses. 
There's a pilot light in Moses that gets lit when he sees this kind of oppression. I'm thinking if we're just going to try to imagine the temperament of Moses, the temperament of Moses is someone who actually cares about justice. It seems to be a data point. You have Moses choosing his own people, going out and casting his eyes down upon their burdens, seeing one of them being abused, and having in him the natural temperament to say, that has got to stop. And it happens again. Watch. We've given three examples, or three vignettes, right in close succession. Because the next day, he goes out the very next day. So this whole, his whole insurrectionist chapter of life lasts two days. He, he goes out the very next day, and he sees two of his own people arguing, right? And he enters into that conversation. Now, who of us does that? I mean, he has a real spirit of justice and intercession. Hey, listen, let's talk this out. Why are you guys fighting? And the guy who's in the wrong, so the one who <laughs> has reason to not have peace here, right? This one is the one who threatens him. What, who made you prince over us? Who, who died and made you God? What are you going to do, kill me too? Right? And that's when the whole thing comes out. It's out, it's in the public, and Moses has to flee. But what's put in front of us here is, is these, these moments where the Bible tells us Moses knew his identity as an Israelite and chose it. And Moses sees these, this need, he sees oppression and he acts on it. And Moses sees injustice and he intercedes. He sees two people against each other and he intercedes, which I have to say, in the life of Moses, when you finally look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you see he is the deliverer of God's people and he is the intercessor of God's people. There is no greater deliverer and no greater intercessor until the person of Jesus Christ. Moses himself is the official intercessor for his people. Meaning when they have problems, they come to him and he goes to the Lord. You see it. You see it in this primitive, flawed sort of way happening right now. And I think we also see it in a failed way. There's no way you can read this account and think, oh, Moses, Moses had the goods. It's a failed effort. If you're going to tell the story, if you're going to say, here's the story of how the people made it out of Egypt, we are almost confined to say, and it can't be simply because of Moses' natural ability, because his own people rejected him, and he had to flee for his life. Okay, let's look at the next 40 years. Now a priest, now the priest of Midian. Okay, you remember Moses went and sat down by a well in Midian. So he's in the Sinai Peninsula. He went east, he's in the Sinai Peninsula. That's around where the people of Midian are. Sits down by a well and this is what happens. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Now you see that again? Who does that? This is the picture I want to paint for you. This is what I think. And I know we're kind of imagining, but this is, it's fun enough to imagine. It's wussy of these guys is what it is. These daughters come out with their flocks. And the way you, the way you would you know, give water to the animals is you draw, they're in the desert, 
right? So they need well and water. They draw water up and they fill the trough. They draw water up and they fill the trough and they fill the trough and they fill the trough and they fill the trough. When the trough's full, then you bring up the animals and they drink. That's kind of what's happening here. These, these scumbags are making the women do all the work. So they sit back, you know, smoking a lucky, watching these, these sisters draw all this water out of the well. And then when all the, when all the work is done, they're like, all right, girls, you know, out of here. And they, bring, they intend to bring their own animals in to drink from the trough. You see how? And Moses is going to have none of that, right? So Moses chases them all off. That's, that's kind of the picture. Okay, so verse 17, the shepherds came uh, and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, who's also Jethro, just so you know, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds. The Hebrew gives you uh, the, the feeling like it's happened before. Like, you notice how surprised he is? This normally takes a long time because you get the impression that regularly they draw the water off and get chased off. So what are you doing home so early today? Well, to the mangy old shepherds didn't get their way today. That's the, that's, the, that's the picture, okay? They answered the Egyptians. This is 19, delivered us out of the hand. The Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom sounds like sojourner or stranger. Now, this is the section that Hollywood can't stand, is how, how could you condense those details? Right? There's romance, there's all sorts of things happening here. And in verse after verse, it's, you know, he helps out at the well. Next thing you know, he's living with Jethro. Next thing you know, he's married. Next thing you know, he has a kid. All Moses really wants you to know is, is, is Moses had no intention of going back and leading an insurrection in Egypt. That's what he wants you to know. You know, in Batman, Batman gets shunned and he goes to some Buddhist temple and trains with ninja arts and then he goes back and rescues the city. Or Rocky, Rocky gets beat down, he goes to Russia and does a bunch of pull-ups, grows a beard and comes back and... Right? This is not Moses. Moses isn't doing any of that. Moses goes to a foreign land, starts living in a tent, adopts a new demeanor and names his son foreigner in a strange land. Moses' identity dissolves. I mean, the name of his son is almost like, who am I? Here's this man whose name is beautifully Hebrew and beautifully Egyptian, and he is lost in the desert. And that's what he wants you to know about himself. He wants you to know there's really no reason I should even be alive except for the sublime grace of God. And I couldn't do it. The story of redemption, I was incapable of doing. I did it in a flawed, pathetic way that lasted two days. And I was lost in the desert before the Lord called me. That's 80 years of Moses' life. 
All right, well, we'll end on this. It, it ends so well because it doesn't end on Moses. That's why it ends so well. So you kind of put a period on Moses' life. We'll get back to it in the third chapter. But then there is this pause, okay? There's this, this interlude, these two verses that are given to us that to me are so theological and they are so deep as far as not just for our own life, but for the, the, the whole play out of the story. Just listen to these verses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So this is it. I, I'll, I'll say it a little more succinctly so you, you can feel the rhythm of what's being said. So during these many days, right, these, these 40 days of, uh, 40 years, excuse me, of time, the king dies, but the, the hardship doesn't die with the pharaoh of Egypt, right? He's replaced by another pharaoh, and you get the impression, if anything, that it gets worse and worse and worse. That's the feeling you get. Because the Hebrew people groan under this burden. But they groan, and you get this image that the Lord hears the groaning. It says, and he hears, and he remembers, and he sees, and he knew. That's what we're given. This, 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 this kind of rhythm of God's response is God hears and remembers his promise, and he sees, and then he knows. And that is the way God works. This is a story of the Lord who hears his people, who remembers his promise, who sees them, and who knows. That know there is a know like and has compassion. It's a know that expects action. And so many of you might not even have known your translation. This is actually the word, and he knew. But the intention is almost, and he considered it with compassion. That's the idea that's going on here. And so you, you have this... You, you, what happens first or what is the cause? This is, this is what I find so blessed in, in this passage is, is it, does God respond simply because people cry out? Is that what we're supposed to walk away with? Is, all of, is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ sitting on this table in front of us because we cried out to him? Because I gotta tell you, I did not ask for this. And you didn't either. If we, if, if, if we were necessarily, if the salvation of the Lord was, was only there for the people who cried out in the right way, if it didn't exist, except for the people who cried out in the right way, I, I fear for the salvation of so many people. Because it's not exactly what's being written here. It is true that the people cry out. The people cry out, but it says, so God heard, and it says, and he remembered his promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then he sees and then he knows. And, and this, is, this is what I think is important. is God saves us not because we cry out well or because we got his attention well. God sent his son because God promised to send his son. 
that the action of the Lord on our behalf is because the Lord has promised himself. That's what our great hope and confidence is in. Our great hope and confidence is not. This is where people, many people, live kind of a fretful, frightful faith because they think they need to constantly, you know, I need to get the Lord's attention. I need, what if, what if I'm not, what if I'm not this, what if I'm not that? And, and I'm here to say that at some point, at some point, us calling out to the Lord is important. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But fundamental in the action of God is the fact that God himself made a promise. And God is going to keep the promise. I think of it this way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there was one of his people who was crying out, Lord, does it have to be this way? Well, what if the Lord had listened to that? I think the Lord's response is, you and I, we made a promise. Right? We promised. In Genesis 15, this is the image. When God makes his promise with Abraham, he cuts animals in fact, to make a covenant in Hebrew is to cut a covenant. He cuts animals and he separates them. And in the ancient covenantal way, the way you understood a covenant is somebody, the participants in the covenant would walk through the cut animals to say, if I fail to make this covenant, if I fail to meet the terms of this covenant, may I be torn asunder like these animals are torn asunder. That was, that was the meaning behind the covenant. And in Genesis 15, this is what God says. God says, Abraham, you watch while I pass through. In other words, I owe this to you. You don't have to walk through it. I will do this thing, even if it means tearing myself asunder. God has made us a promise, which is why he can break the bread and give thanks and say, this is my body which is given to you, because he's made a promise. God keeps his promises. This is why he can say, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, because God is a God of promises. It says in Romans that, that Abraham and his people were not heirs of the world. It says that they weren't heirs of the world because of the law, of the things they did. They were heirs of this, of this promise through faith, through the righteousness that comes through faith. That we, we own the promise of Abraham through faith. And so we see here that this is a story where God is saving because God's made a promise. God told Abraham, I will bless you and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to do this, Abraham. Watch me as I pass through. I will do this thing for you. He says that to Abraham and he will do it. Now, as for the crying out, I will say... It's mysterious to me. Sometimes the Lord saves people when, when their cry sounds like this, when it's a six-year-old whisper of Jesus coming to my heart. I mean, I think of all the worship going on in heaven, of angels and elders and creatures singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then a little child says, Jesus come into my heart. And the Lord's like, shh, do you hear that? I have a promise to keep. I mean, so sometimes the crying out is in such a peaceful, tender, beautiful way, right? That's how we all want it to be, right? Sometimes the crying out is at rock bottom when you are an utter slave to your sin and the, the, the prince of this earth is turning the thumbscrews down on you so that there's nothing left and all you know is 
I am a slave and I have no hope. And all I can say is, is the Lord does not save people who do not cry out to him. He has to hear you. Whether it is this quiet whisper of I want you to be my Lord, even when you barely understand it, when your desire is more accurate than your thought, or whether it is if the Lord just has to allow you to sit in slavery until you can't stand it any longer. You know, for those of you who know the story, after Exodus, the people of Israel are so annoying and so immature and so unworthy. Can you imagine them rescuing them out of Egypt before they were groaning? The worst possible thing to do for somebody is to give them the sense that they've been rescued by the Lord when they are still a friend of Egypt. Because they will leave and come back. This is a story of the Lord. Moses is in the story. But Moses wouldn't be in the story if it wasn't for the Lord. And Moses isn't good enough in the story, but for the help of the Lord. And Moses isn't even in Egypt unless the Lord brings him back. This is a story of the Lord seeing his people and rescuing them. And this is the same story. Jesus has heard our cry. He has remembered his promises. He has looked down and seen us, and he has come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that they would um, thoughtfully consider the truth of your word. The reality, Lord, that you, you extend your promise to all people, but that it goes to those who cry out. And so, Lord, in the scriptures you have people saying, what must I do to be saved? And the response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. You have others saying, what do we do? Woe is us, what do we do? And the response is, repent and be baptized for the remittance of sins in Jesus' name. These calls for people to cry out and to respond to Jesus, Lord, so we know that that is in our role, that sits in our lives as something you expect, Lord. But, But we can also look upon this table knowing with confidence that you are a promise keeper and that you gave an ancient promise that you have not forgotten and that you will save us. And Lord, that you gave your own son. What, what greater sign can be given than your son? I pray, Lord, as we approach your table, we'd use this time individually to clear our spirits with you. But Lord, I pray for comfort. Comfort for each person as they rest in you. That we're saved because of your promise. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.